Happy Sabbath to all of you. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, greetings to all our brethren around the world. And uh, welcome to all our guests and visitors that are here today, especially from Virginia and uh, other locales. This past week, Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain, visited Jerusalem in an international, as an international envoy. His purpose is to facilitate a new peace effort among the Israelis and the Palestinians with a prospect for a Palestinian state. And who is sponsoring this effort? They are called the Quartet of Peace Brokers, four major powers, the United States, the European Union, the United Nations, and Russia. In addition to that effort, representatives from Jordan, um, yes, Jordan and Egypt uh, visited with leaders in Israel this past week representing the Arab Union. The Arab nations who met in March in Saudi Arabia are now willing to recognize Israel as a state if, the big word if, they return to the pre-1967 borders. And, of course, Mahmoud Abbas, the Fatah leader of the Palestinians, would agree with that. So here are two major efforts being made to bring about peace in a new Palestinian state in Israel. Palestinian Prime Minister Fayyad's plan, that is, for the Palestinian, includes two states within the 1967 borders. The headline here is, Peace in a Year, and Jerusalem is the capital of the two states, proposed by Mahmoud Abbas. His prime minister says, well, they want the two states within the 1967 borders, and this is the interesting solution, which I've heard before many times in the past, with Jerusalem as the shared capital. Abbas believes that President Bush means it when he says he wants a solution before he leaves office in 2009. Also from Dateline Ramallah, Two states within the 1967 borders at peace with each other, with Jerusalem as their shared capital and a solution to the Palestinian refugee problem on the basis of past United Nations resolutions. This is the program that the new Palestinian government, chaired by Salam Fayyad, presented to the Palestinian parliament. Now against this, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz said on Wednesday that Israel was willing to offer to the Palestinians a state on 90% of the West Bank territory and Gaza Strip, including a tunnel to link the two Palestinian territories. Now, that's an interesting solution. There have always been very creative and interesting solutions to the Middle East problem. But some of you know the other proposed solutions over the years. In 1975, the United States Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, proposed that Jerusalem become an international city with the control of the holy places and the religious administration given to whom? The Pope. That was suggested in 1975. And then in 1980, Israel's parliament, the Knesset, passed a law called Basic Law, Jerusalem, Capital of Israel. And that proclaims, quote, Jerusalem, Complete and united is the capital of Israel. So for Israel to compromise on the unified Jerusalem concept, others' comment would be illegal. 
1980, Israel declared Jerusalem as its, quote, united and eternal capital. But when Israel did that, the Vatican strongly objected. And in 1984, Pope John Paul II called for Jerusalem to have a special internationally guaranteed status. And then later, in 1998, Pope John Paul II spoke to a new Jordanian ambassador at the Vatican. He stated this, quote, The long history of the city of Jerusalem, filled with tribulations, will reach a new threshold in the year 2000, with the dawn of the third millennium of Christianity. It is my fervent hope that this may lead to a formal recognition with international guarantees of the unique and sacred identity of the holy city. So we'll see whether that does actually come to pass in the future. Just what is the future of Jerusalem? And why is it important to the world? And why should it be important to you? Some years ago, I had been to Jerusalem and had very excited about it, came back to Pasadena, and I gave a Bible study in the Pasadena Auditorium. And I asked everyone, how many, to raise their hands, how many of you would like to live in Jerusalem? And out of the audience of 700 in the Pasadena Auditorium, only three people raised their hands. They kind of liked Pasadena rather than the thought of moving to Jerusalem at that time. How many of you, I'd like to see your hands now, I'm going to test you. How many of you would eventually, and I'll give that the caveat, eventually like to live in Jerusalem? Oh, good. It's better than three hands. I appreciate that. Let's turn to John, the 14th chapter. John 14. Jerusalem is important to the world, but sometimes out of sight, out of mind, it's not so important to some of us. But Jesus was in Jerusalem. Of course, he was in Galilee as well, but he actually taught in the temple in Jerusalem. And the night before he was crucified, told his disciples in verse 1 of John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Here is God's Son, the Messiah. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. The NIV has in my Father's house are many rooms. The New American Standard Version has, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. The Darby Translation has, In my Father's house there are many abodes. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He was referring to the temple when he said, in his father's house. When you look at some of the floor plans of the temple, and you can take a look at some of the Bible dictionaries, and you'll see floor plans, uh, they vary in their ideas, but there were rooms in the attached, actually in the main sanctuary, or the main wall of the permanent tabernacle building, or the temple building rather, there were rooms for the priests. Other uh, floor plans show another section outside of the temple proper where there were rooms for the priests. Those rooms, of course, indicated their office, their responsibilities. And, of course, Christ, when he says he's going to prepare a place or abiding places for us, he's not talking just about a location, 
but about the responsibilities those offices or those rooms symbolize. There were rooms for the priests. Let's understand that Christ is preparing a place, a responsibility for you personally. I used to dream of uh, what my room would look like. And uh, you uh, think about all, I'd like to have waterfalls, you know, in my room and all kinds of uh, beautiful decorations. But Christ is preparing a place for you. We know Revelation 5.10, that we're called to be kings and priests, and that we'll rule on the earth. In 1 Corinthians 6.2, that the saints shall judge the world. So all of us are going to be kings, priests, and judges. But he says in verse 3 of John 14, that where I am, there you will be also. So where will you be in the future? Most likely, you will be with Christ. That where I am, you may be also. Well, where will Jesus live? Where will he dwell? He's in heaven right now, but he's coming back to this earth. Let's turn to Zechariah, the 8th chapter. And if you have time to read Zechariah, the 8th chapter, it's a very inspiring chapter. But uh, let's take a look at verses 3 through 8 of Zechariah 8. Thus says the Eternal, and of course, who is the God of the Old Testament? 1 Corinthians 10.4 The rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Thus says the Eternal, Zechariah 8.3, I am returned unto Zion. There is Mount Zion in the Jerusalem area, symbolic of the government and uh, the dwelling place. And I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. Again, mountains are symbolic of government or kingdom. But the Lord says he will dwell. He's actually going to be there in the midst of Jerusalem. And then you have this beautiful picture of the millennium. Thus says the eternal of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. And every man with his staff in his hand for very age. The streets of the city shall be filled full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. And he says, this is very marvelous. And he said in verse 8, I will bring them and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. That is his people coming from the east country and the west country in the second exodus. And they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Where will you live in the future? What city will you call home Your future home will be Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. The kingdom of God is going to rule from Jerusalem. And the King of kings and Lord of lords will govern all nations from that capital. Brethren, Jerusalem is very important to God the Father. Jerusalem is very important to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the King of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem should be very important to you. Now, do you know that your very identity is associated with Jerusalem? Who you are, what you are, what you are going to be. Do you know that your very name, your future name, is connected to Jerusalem? Well, let's consider five keys today to help you appreciate Jerusalem. Five keys to help you honor Jerusalem your future home. 
key number one is understand the importance of Jerusalem as world capital. We just saw here in Zechariah 8 and verse 3 that the Lord will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. Let's turn back to Isaiah, the second chapter, Isaiah 2. There are not too many cities of truth uh, that exist today. We can be very thankful that God has opened our minds to the truth. Isaiah, the second chapter. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Eternal's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. So of all the kingdoms and governments of the world, it will be the top kingdom and government. And shall be exalted above the little hills, little mountains. And notice, all nations shall flow to it. All nations are going to submit to this new world government. There will not be an exception. They will either submit or be coerced and persuaded to submit. And many people shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Eternal, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. No, people don't have a teachable attitude today. The nations are selfish. They're ambitious with selfish ambition. They have their own political uh, ideas and ideologies that conflict with God's way of life. But in that time, they will be have a change of heart, a change of mind. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem will be the center of world government. It will be the center of world education. Let's turn to Isaiah, the 30th chapter, scripture we read during the Feast of Tabernacles. Because this is millennial. This looks forward to the time when there will be a new educational system. He will teach us of his ways. But we are going to be kings and priests. One of the big responsibilities of a priest is to teach. Isaiah, the 30th chapter, and verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you. At the voice of your cry, when he shall hear it, he will answer you. Well, God will answer us, as we heard in the sermonette. If we have that humble attitude, and we'll be humbling ourselves in the fast next week. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner any more, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Remember that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to his disciples there in Galilee, and they were out fishing. And uh, Peter uh, saw him, and uh, John says, it's, it's the Lord. And Peter quickly uh, swam to shore. And Jesus had fish ready for them. Well, they brought in some of the fish. And uh, Jesus ate the fish along with some of his disciples. He had already been resurrected. They were able to see him. He was no longer flesh and blood, but he was able to manifest himself so that they could see him. And your ears shall hear a word behind you, because we will be the teachers, along with the major master teacher, of course, Christ. Verse 21, your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk you in it, 
when you turn to the right hand, and when you turn to the left. So Jerusalem will be the city of world education, and we'll learn more about that millennial education in just a couple more months at the Feast of Tabernacles, and I hope that you're all preparing and planning diligently for the feast, for your travel, and to uh, where God places his name. So key number one is understand the importance of Jerusalem as world capital. Key number two to help you honor Jerusalem, your future home, and to appreciate it, is understand the importance of Jerusalem in Bible prophecy. Christ told us to watch. We know Luke 21, if you'll turn there, Luke 21, 36. Watch you therefore and pray always. Again, never slacking because you have a consistent commitment that you're praying every day on your knees and probably many times throughout the day being instant in prayer and to pray without ceasing. This is one of the Olivet prophecies, of course, Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. And he tells us to watch and pray always, not just that you're going to escape, but you shall be able to stand before the Son of Man. And if we're close to God and to Christ now, as we heard the sermonette, we will be able to stand before the Son of Man, because we're humbling ourselves now. So he told us to watch and to be alert and to prayer, to be watch of the signs of the times. I hope you saw Dr. Meredith's telecast last week, Christ's command to watch. Turn back to uh, verse 20. Here we find one of the key elements of Jerusalem and Bible prophecy. Verse 20 of Luke 21. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that its desolation thereof is near. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let them not let them that are in the countries um, not enter into it. So this was, of course, happened uh, during the time of the Christians, uh, around 70 A.D., before Titus uh, finally uh, sealed the city, and no one was able to escape that, the Christians were able to escape to a small area called Pella, and uh, that's mentioned in uh, Christian history. But he said in verse 22, These be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So there is a parallel to now and to the future. We need to be watching Jerusalem to see what will happen there. It says, They shall fall by the edge of the sword, be led away captive, verse 24, into all nations, And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And while those in Israel are excited about being Israelis and they are very sensitive to their survival as a state, God says they are going to be punished, that there is going to be a change of government in Jerusalem. The Gentiles are going to trodden it down. Now, let's turn back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Again, I hope you saw uh, a few weeks ago, July 8th, the telecast End Time Powers of Middle East by Mr. Wallace Smith. Just a very clear picture of the Middle East and prophecy in that telecast. Matthew 24 and uh, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations, and then shall the end come. And thank you for those of you who are helpful in getting us on public access stations. We're now on uh, 
over 200 uh, stations, telecast uh, stations around the world, and uh, very encouraged by the doors that God is opening up. But we have at least 70 or 80 of our brethren that are uh, going to public access stations every week and and, uh, putting in uh, the tapes that uh, come out from headquarters. So if some of you are in other areas that we don't have the telecast, uh, call Mr. Pyle and uh, he'll uh, give you some uh, guidelines as how to contact a local public address station so that we can get on that particular uh, uh, station or in that particular city. Now notice verse 15, which is key for all of us. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, and the holy place is where? In Jerusalem. It was interesting, I was reading... uh, just doing some research on the Temple Mount, and one of the Jewish approaches is that uh, the story was that when Titus came into Jerusalem, the emperor wanted everything destroyed, but one of the four commanders left the western wall standing, and uh, he apparently didn't carry out his order. And so he asked, why didn't you do what the emperor wanted you to do? He said, well, I wanted the emperor to see how great a destruction he brought upon the city. So he left the western wall standing. And, of course, the uh, Jewish take on that is that, well, the holy presence was in the west. That is, the holy of holies, when the the second temple was there, You know, the temple is oriented west to east with the entrance on the east, the Holy of Holies being on the west. So they felt, well, here holiness and God's presence is in the west and the western wall is still standing. That's one perspective that uh, some of the Jewish religious authorities have. But we need to be aware of a holy place there in Jerusalem where this abomination of desolation will be set up, and most of you know we've explained that, Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, that there is one who's going to call himself God, standing in the holy place, proclaiming that he is God. If you want to know more, again, about the abomination of desolation, I hope you've read the Middle Eastern Prophecy booklet and uh, has more detail, of course, than we can cover in today's sermon. But you need to be watching the Middle East. Revelation, the 11th chapter. So understand the importance of Jerusalem in Bible prophecy. It's the focal point for the ultimate destruction of the world system and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Revelation 11, verse 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. So Jerusalem will be trodden down, as we read back in Luke 21, by the Gentiles. Of course, this is during the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, as you know, is the last year preceding the return of Christ. It consists of the seven trumpet plagues, and the last trumpet plague consists of the seven last plagues. And one of those last plagues is what we refer to in shorthand, Armageddon. You turn over to Revelation 16, 
and verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he, or they, that is the demons, mentioned back in verse 13 and 14, gathered them, that is the kings of the earth, into a place called in Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Of course, these armies gather there, but they go down south to Jerusalem to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And uh, I will maybe get to that here in a minute. Yeah, Joel, the third chapter. Joel, the third chapter. All the armies of the earth... And we've uh, eastern armies combined with the western armies and uh, come down to uh, Jerusalem. And Joel, the third chapter. Joel, the third chapter and verse 1. For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, King James' expression, bring again the captivity, that means they're going to be released. They're going to be delivered from captivity. And I will also gather all nations who will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So they come down there, and it says in verse 12, Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Zechariah, the 14th chapter. So that's south of Jerusalem. It was a huge valley. The Kidron Valley is very narrow, very limited. But it widens out as you go south from Jerusalem, opens up into a very large valley. Zechariah, the 14th chapter. I just described here in verse 12. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Eternal will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Zechariah 14.12 Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. I wouldn't want to fight against Christ in His coming. I want to be on His side. He has a great deal of power. And, of course, all the nations that are left, because there are some that are going to be greatly destroyed. We know that one-third of all humanity will be destroyed, as it brings out in the book of Revelation from the kings of the east coming across the Euphrates, the 200-million-man army. Zechariah 14, verse 16. So all the nations that are left that survive the judgment of God which came against Jerusalem, shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Eternal of hosts. They will come up to Jerusalem. So understand the importance of Jerusalem in prophecy. Key number three is to understand the importance of Jerusalem to Jesus Christ. How important is Jerusalem to the Messiah? If it's important to Him... It should be important to us. Let's turn to Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Hebrews 7. Now, there is a tradition 
and uh, perhaps some of you researchers can uh, confirm it for me, but I did read it in uh, one of the old traditions. There's a tradition that Adam and Eve were actually created in the area that is now Jerusalem and then transported to the Middle East, or that is not the Middle East, to Mesopotamia, uh, where the Garden of Eden traditionally was located. Uh, Because it says when you read in Genesis 2 and 3, it said that God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden. It didn't say that he created them in the Garden of Eden. So that's one tradition. Hebrews, the seventh chapter, talking about the focus of Jerusalem and its its importance. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Jerusalem simply means city of peace. It's not had that much peace, but that's what it means. In Christ, that is, the Melchizedek, the king of Salem, uh, was king and met Abraham. Now notice verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Some of the commentators say, well, uh, he must have lost the papers of his genealogy because they didn't know where who his father was. Or, or but you know, but is that what happened? If that were true, you can count get the truth on it by the next sentence. But made like unto the Son of God, abides right now. He lives now as a priest continually. And who is that? It's our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. He lives continually. They didn't lose his genealogy. He was uh, without father or mother. And he was the God of the Old Testament. And so they paid tithes. Uh, Again, uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is the priesthood book, trying to help the Jews and the Holy Land to realize before the great uh, tribulation of its day of 70 A.D., that they needed to repent and to change from the Levitical priesthood to the Christian Melchizedek priesthood. And this is very persuasive all the way through the whole book of Hebrews. For the priesthood, verse 12, being changed, there is also made a necessity a change of the law. That is, the administration of tithing no longer goes to the Levitical priesthood, but to those under the Melchizedek priesthood. So who was king of Salem? It was the one who was Christ. And you can look back. We won't take time now, but read back uh, the story in Genesis 14, uh, verses 17 through 20, when Abraham met him and they brought out bread and wine. Could that have been symbolic or a precursor or prescient of the Passover? Well, you know a little bit of the history of Jerusalem, and that is, of course, uh, after the Exodus, Joshua conquered the Promised Land, and they came to the city called Jebus, or Jebus, which was Jerusalem. It's called Jebus. That's Joshua, the 18th chapter. I won't turn back there. Just give you a, a thumbnail sketch here. 
but that's Joshua 18, verses 16 and 28. It says, Jebus, or Jebusai, which is Jerusalem. So it tells you in Joshua 18, 28, that Jebus actually is Jerusalem. After the conquering of the land, and then after uh, Samuel and Saul, King David ruled from Hebron. And he ruled there three and a half years at Second Samuel, the second chapter. In 1984, when my wife and I were there with the ambassador students at the City of David Excavations, Dick Page took my wife and me down to Hebron at the Cave of the Patriarchs, which it's called. I don't know, did you get to have been there? Uh, just to me was one of the most inspiring places I've ever been, to think that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were traditionally buried there and their wives. Just very, very inspiring. Of course, uh, there have been conflicts because of Israeli settlements in the area in more recent times and Palestinian conflicts in that area, but it is very sacred to both uh, Arabs and to Israelis. A very inspiring place. Well, that's where David ruled for three and a half years because Saul's son was still ruling the kingdom of Israel. But after three and a half years, uh, the uh, northern kingdom wanted David to rule over them as well. And so David came from Hebron up to the Jerusalem area. But there was a problem. Uh, the Jebusites still controlled that part of Jerusalem which became the city of David. And uh, there was a... Uh, David said, well, whoever gets up to the... In the King James gutter, it's called in the Hebrew Tsinor, which means aqueduct, he, can, he will uh, be rewarded greatly. Because the Jebusite said, well, uh, the blind and the lame, whoever can take over the blind and the lame, you know, uh, they were just ridiculing those King David, saying, you can't take it over. Even the blind and the lame can defend uh, Jebusite here. And, uh, but however, Joab was able to get inside and, uh, my wife and I have been able to, with Dick Page, go down into a tunnel uh, that is right above the uh, Gihon Spring. And you look down, directly uh, down into that area, and you see uh, actually the uh, Hezekiah's Tunnel, which goes all the way from Gihon Spring down to the Pool of Siloam. We walk through that uh, up to uh, our Knee and knees and almost sometimes up a little uh, deep. We walked all the way through that tunnel, seven-tenths of a mile with candles and flashlights. And at the middle of that tunnel is a section where it uh, jogs. And even more recently in the paper, there is a stone carving from King Hezekiah's time that uh, they want returned to the Israeli museums, which says that as they got clo close to one another, they could hear each other. And they're burying, they're drilling through solid rock from the two ends, the Gihon Spring and the Pool of Siloam area. And they're coming and it curves in, and right at the middle there's a little jog. They missed by about three feet. They didn't have GPS in those days. They didn't have modern um, uh, surveying equipment. And yet, how did they do that? Incredible. And so when you walk through, there's a little jog, and you go on down from Gihon Spring down to... Um, down to the Pool of Siloam, because why did King Hezekiah do that? Well, water is always the key to survival, and when the cities would be sieged, besieged, 
uh, they needed a water supply. So this was within the walls of the city of David, and they were able then to withhold, uh, withstand any siege that would happen in those days. Well, that was under the city of David, and of course there's still controversy as to what was that Sinor. Was it what we saw, or was it something else? <clears throat> I can discuss that with some of you after uh, services if you'd like. So once that was established, the city of David was established, and we were doing excavations there and for many years, ambassador students did. Then King David wanted to establish a temple. Of course, God would not let him, but uh, King Solomon built the first temple where the Temple Mount is, notwithstanding other theories. And uh, it was dedicated. First Kings, the eighth chapter, is the dedicatory uh, prayer by King Solomon. Just very inspiring. But then, to make a long story short, as you know, the northern kingdom, after the uh, King Rehoboam took it over as the he became king of the northern tribes, and the nation split once again. It was no longer united. You had the house of Israel, the north, and the house of Jerusalem, or Israel, or Judah in the south. So he had the two kingdoms. Israel, of course, committed idolatry. It started with Jeroboam. Rehoboam was in the south. And after so many years, a couple centuries, then God took Israel into captivity through Assyria. And what years were those? Uh, Test question number one. Uh, When did Israel go into captivity? Uh, 721 to 718 B.C. And uh, God said Judah did worse. He sent Jeremiah, other prophets, warning Judah to repent. They didn't repent. They didn't think as long as the temple's there, nothing's going to happen. But then God brought King Nebuchadnezzar for Judah's captivity from what years? Question number two. Uh, 604 to 586 B.C. And, of course, that's when Daniel and his three friends in the earlier one of the earlier captivities was taken to Babylon. And the temple then was destroyed in 586 B.C. The people were, of course, in Babylon, and uh, they, kept, they kept remembering uh, Jerusalem. You know the psalm that said, if my right hand, if I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I don't remember you, Jerusalem, let my tongue cleave to my mouth. So even in captivity, the exiles remembered Jerusalem. And we need to remember Jerusalem and be aware of it perhaps more consciously than we are. There was a, an exile back into Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, and um, the, temple, the second temple was finished in 515 B.C. And then the Messiah comes to that second temple. Let's turn to Malachi, the third chapter, Malachi 3. As he is the messenger of the covenant. So under Ezra and Nehemiah, the exiles returned to Jerusalem, and uh, the second temple was built. Malachi, the third chapter, and verse 1. 
Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Eternal of hosts. And then then verse 2 transitions into the second coming. Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he's going to refine and purify the sons of Levi. But he came to the temple as the Messiah. Jesus taught in Jerusalem. We need to understand the importance of Jerusalem to Jesus Christ. He was king of Jerusalem. He was Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Turn to Luke, the 19th chapter. Luke 19. Here he was teaching in the temple daily. Verse 47, Luke 19. But the chief priests and scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So Jesus taught at the temple. He gave the parable of the nobleman, or the parable of the pounds or minas. And then in verse 29, we have the story of the what is called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When we were taping in 1992, the World Tomorrow telecast, which I did a two-part series on um, the Jesus of Jerusalem, and uh, we had it down below the in the Kidron Valley. We had a donkey, and and uh, I was doing some narration, and we we're looking up towards the Temple Mount. And here at the Temple Mount is the Eastern Gate or the Golden Gate. It's all sealed up now. You imagine Christ coming down from the Mount of Olives on that donkey, and what you read here is astounding. You know, he was despised by the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him. But notice what the people did. Verse 36, As he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come near, even down now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, so he's coming down the western side of the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and then back up again to the Temple Mount through the Golden Gate, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Here is the king of Salem coming back into his city on a donkey, fulfilling some of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And here was the king. And many of the disciples recognized who he was, that he was the king of Israel. He was the king of Jerusalem. But notice... Verse 41, did Jesus really have an attachment to that city? And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, at least in this your day, the things which behold belong to your peace, but now are hid from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you that your enemies shall cast a trench around you, encompass you round and keep you on every side. And they shall lay you even with the ground and your children within you. And they shall not leave in you one stone upon another, because you knew not the time of your visitation. 
They didn't acknowledge the king coming to their city. When you read Josephus and about the close to one million people that died in the siege when Titus surrounded the city, they paid a penalty. And he went into the temple and began to cast them out that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house, the temple, is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He had a close attachment to that city. If he has an attachment, close attachment to that city, we do too. We need to as well. So key number three was understand the importance of Jerusalem to Jesus Christ. Key number four is to understand the importance of the Jerusalem temple. Let's turn back to Exodus, the 25th chapter, Exodus 25. There were the two temples, of course, the temple, Solomon's temple, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Then the second temple, built under Ezra and Nehemiah, which was expanded upon by King Herod in Jesus' day. And, of course, the disciples were very impressed. Lord, look at these, these big stones uh, here. And, of course, huge uh, stones weighing many tons each that were put into the temple. And Jesus said there will be not one stone left upon another. So he told them there in Matthew 24. But what was the symbolism of the temple? What was the meaning? Here before the temple was the tabernacle. And they took that up, and God gave Moses instructions on the very design of the tabernacle. And again, that's a study in itself. There are symbol, symbolic meanings of the uh, pillars and, the, of course, the altars, the incense, the, the bread, the offerings... Uh, quite a uh, interesting in-depth study of the symbolism of the tabernacle and the offerings is, uh, can be very inspiring. Exodus 25 and verse 8. He's describing uh, the various offerings and uh, what they needed, the materials they needed for the tabernacle. Verse 8 of Exodus 25. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So what was the purpose of the tabernacle? That it would be symbolic of God dwelling among them. And of course, he said later in Isaiah 66, what are you doing, building me a, a temple? Don't you know that the earth is my footstool? But this was under God's instruction. And they had that tabernacle among them for those years of wandering in the desert. And the cloud of uh, appeared, a pillar of cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night that led them throughout those 40 years of wandering. But that was symbolic that God was among them. He dwelt in them. And, of course, I hope that all of you realize when we talk about the human body, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, that know you not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, and you are not your own. So God lives in us through His Spirit. Christ lives in us by His Spirit. But the temple, the tabernacle at that time was symbolic of the presence of Christ. Then, of course, we had we already discussed the matter of the, the two temples. Um, of course, within that tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, into which the high priest entered just once a year on the Day of Atonement. Solomon built the first temple. We already mentioned that in the dedication 
is in First Kings, the eighth chapter, also Second Chronicles six and seven. Let's turn to Second Chronicles seven <clears throat> again to see how important the temple was in Jerusalem. Again, symbolic of God's presence, the Holy of Holies particular. Second Chronicles, the seventh chapter. We've had sermons on uh, relating to this. Verse 1, Solomon had uh, offered a prayer of consecration and dedication in chapter 6. In chapter 7, verse 1, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. So here is a great miracle. And the priest could not enter, verse 2, into the house of the eternal, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And then the famous verse 14, which I hope all of you have marked, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Solomon's temple was built, but then in 586, as I mentioned earlier, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army destroyed the temple. What day was it that they destroyed the temple? This past Tuesday was July 23rd, but on the sacred calendar, it was what date? The 9th of Av. In the Hebrew calendar, it's called Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av. Tisha is for the number 9 in Hebrew, and Av is the 5th month. We might turn to uh, Zechariah, the 8th chapter. I mentioned it earlier as a very inspiring chapter which I hope that you can read. But here's another aspect of what happened on the 9th of Av. It is called the Fast of Av. So this past Tuesday was the fast of the fourth month that many of the Jews observe and would have been fasting this past Tuesday. Why? Well, we'll see in a moment. But let's uh, get back to Zechariah, the 8th chapter. Zechariah 8. And verse 19, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth, so this past Tuesday was the fast of the fifth month. The month of is the fifth month in the Hebrew calendar. And the fast of the seventh, this is another fast, not the Day of Atonement, but also within the month of Tishri, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace. That hasn't happened yet. That's future. That's during the millennium, that these four fasts, one of which was just this past Tuesday. Why? Because it's reflecting back on the tragedy of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar on the 9th of Av in 586. And what was the date of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D.? The 9th of Av. So both temples were destroyed on that date. 
and other uh, Jewish commentaries. Try to look at the calendar from the time of Pentecost. That is when the the Israelis, Israelis, uh, the children of Israel came out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. And they realized, well, how long was it when the spies went in to see the promised land? And they came back and gave an evil report, and Joshua and Caleb were very positive, but all the others were rebels. And what pronouncement was made? You will not go into the promised land because of your rebellion. You will wander for 40 years. And some of the Jewish commentaries believe that that also was the ninth of Av. In any case, here is a feast of the fifth month, which is going to be turned into joy later on. Psalm 137, I referred to that before. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Israel, um, O Jerusalem, excuse me, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Well, even now, then, there is the movement in Israel to build a temple and renew the sacrifices. Just uh, recently, in the Jerusalem Post, just a couple weeks ago, uh, matter of fact, July 13th through 19th, was an editorial titled, The World Needs the Temple. The author, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, refers to Tisha B'Av, which I've referred to as the fast of the fifth month, and the other four post-exilic fasts based on the historic significance. He writes, The temple is to be the beacon from which this message, that is, the world peace under our God of love, is his message. The temple is to be the beacon from which this message goes forth, inspiring nations to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and usher in the time when nation shall not lift up sword against nation, humanity will not train for war anymore. And Riskin concluded the article in the Jerusalem Post by saying, quote, only a temple teaching absolute morality in the city of peace can secure the future of freedom in our global village. Let me repeat that. It's, It's true. But it's not in this day and age It will be from a temple in the future, not now. Only a temple teaching absolute morality in the city of peace can secure the future of freedom in our global village. We've already described the new educational system and the new world government. The world needs a temple, but that temple is going to be built and managed by the Messiah, not the secular modern nation of Israel. When Christ rules the world with the saints, they will teach the world the absolute morality that it needs. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there will not be a third temple before. In fact, some of the Jews believe, and perhaps Mr. Clore can uh, clarify this, uh, many of the Jews believe that the third temple will be built by the Jews, Others believe that the third temple will be built by the Messiah. When you look at the Ezekiel 40, verses 48, then that is the temple that many believe will be built by the Messiah. And others believe there will be four temples. We have the second temple now, which some count as also the third because Herod worked on it. 
but let's count this one as the second temple that was destroyed in 70 A.D., a third temple to be built by the Jews, and a fourth uh, by the Messiah. That, those are some of the scenarios that are out there. And, uh, but we do need to look forward to a holy place, whether it is a building or not a building. And, of course, on the Temple Mount, there are several scenarios, one of which is that the Holy of Holies is right where the Dome of the Rock is now, and that Solomon's Temple stood right there. The other scenario is that the um, Holy of Holies was not there, but at a foundation stone under the Dome of Tablets, the Dome of the Spirits, which is just to the north of the Dome of the Rock. And uh, other civil engineers have drawn a scenario of the temple on the Temple Mount, lined up with the foundation stone under the Temple of Spirits, and lined up with the Golden Gate. Is that correct? Thank you. So <clears throat> those are a couple of scenarios. And there are other scenarios that uh, are being uh, suggested as to how uh, the temple will be built. I think I've told you this one before, but it uh, I have to be careful <clears throat> what I say. But there was... Uh, a rabbi that visited one of our major uh, representatives in, in Pasadena at one time wanting the imprimatur of the church to so this particular rabbi. And he was asked the question, well, where are you going to build the temple? Because the temple, the Dome of the Rock sits right where the temple should be. And his answer was, we will build over the Dome of the Rock. So we won't have to destroy the the uh, Dome of the Rock, and we'll build just over it. Well, <clears throat> that's a little absurd, uh, very impractical, and uh, it is creative, of course, I'll admit that. <laughs> so we need to be watching what is going to happen there. But let's turn to uh, Daniel, the eighth, twelfth uh, chapter, Daniel 12. And <clears throat> again, we see that there will be sacrifices. Verse 11, near the end of the chapter, and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination of desolate set up, that's one phrase, not two different events, but the same event. And because we see that is going to happen in Matthew 24:15, the abomination of desolation. So from the time that the sacrifice and the abomination of desolation are set up, the sacrifice is taken away, one and the same, will be 1,290 days. Till what? Till the end, Daniel is keep asking here, what will be the end of these things? In verse 6 and verse 8, And I said, O Lord, what shall be the end of these things? The end is when Daniel stands up in the resurrection. Verse 13, But go your way till the end be, for you shall rest and stand in your lot, the resurrection at the end of days. Some have come up with the the wrong speculation that those days do not end, but they have a common starting point rather than a common ending. But the truth is they have a common ending. Otherwise, Daniel will be resurrected uh, 45 day days later, 90 days later after the rest of us, and that's not going to happen. He's going to be, we're going to be resurrected the same time he is. These are the end, they have a common ending point. So 1,290 days before Christ returns, the sacrifices stop. Verse 12, Blessed is he that waits and comes to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days, thirteen hundred and thirty-five days before the end. 
We don't have very much information. The only information we have is what? Blessed is he who waits. But when you look at the scriptures and you look at the sequence of events in Matthew 24, waiting has to do with persevering and oftentimes through persecution. And you find just before the abomination of desolation, what happens? You read that in Matthew 24, verse 9. They will betray one another, and you'll be hated of all nations. So there is strong persecution from the 1335 to the 1290 days. It's going to be a very testing time. It's going to be determining who is going to remain faithful and who is going to go in a place in the wilderness. Because that's the sign Jesus gave at the 1290 days when the abomination of desolation is set up. We already read that in Matthew 24, 15. So I think, glad, good to see some heads shaking here that you understand. I appreciate that. <laughs> Most of you understand. So the sacrifices are going to be taken away, but if they're going to be taken away, they need to start. More recently, just this spring, uh, some were, that is one of the, uh, they call it the radical uh, New Sanhedrin Council in Jerusalem, wanted to sacrifice a live animal on the Temple Mount. And this was February 4th from Haaretz.com. In their efforts to sacrifice a live animal on the Temple Mount, the New Sanhedrin Council adopted an almost underground modus operandi. Rabbis Aden Steinsaltz, Israeli Israel Ariel, uh, Yishai Baved, and their associates secretly located a butcher, found a Kohen, or priest, hailing from a lineage 1,000 years old, and worked out a plan to quickly erect an altar on the Temple Mount. But the Supreme Court prohibited them from doing that. This again shows you that there is a move in Israel to start the sacrifices. This is, what, this is from ynetnews.com about the Jewish temple. Renew animal sacrifices on Mount, says radical rabbi, same group. Animal sacrifices should be renewed on the Temple Mount, a member of the radical Sanhedrin organization told Ynet News. In ancient Israel and Judea, the Sanhedrin served as the highest court in the land and was made up of 71 top judges. Now a group of fringe rabbis say they have reformed the group, although the organization has received no recognition from Israel's official religious authorities. In the Torah, there are about 200 commandments dealing with animal sacrifices, said Rabbi Dov Stein of the Sanhedrin organization. The Torah of Israel demands animal sacrifices. When the people of Israel were in the diaspora, diaspora that couldn't be done. <clears throat> but now... There is a supreme institution of the Sanhedrin made up of experts, and it can be done. The new Sanhedrin, like the old, will educate the people of Israel on how to keep and safeguard the Torah. And then the concluding uh, statement of this particular article says, According to mainstream Jewish thought, animal sacrifices must not be carried out outside of temple, which itself cannot be rebuilt by human endeavor, but will be rebuilt upon the, the arrival of the Messiah. Again, that's just another perspective as I've described earlier. Now, what is going to prompt the Israelis to do sacrifices again? I won't turn there, but it tells us in Hosea 6 and verses 1 and 2 that when Judah sees its wound, 
it goes to Assyria or Ephraim goes to Assyria. There's going to be a time when Judah will have some kind of a wound. Will it be military? Will it be religious? Will it be um, economic or a combination of all of them? Will it be some kind of a national tragedy that will prompt Israel to begin the sacrifices once again? Many in Israel realize that there are many sins for which Judah is going to be judged. We often think of the Israelis as being religious, but it's been estimated that just over half of Israeli Jews identify themselves as Hiloni, H-I-L-O-N-I, which means secular. Half of the Israelis consider themselves secular. They're not religious. About 15 to 20 percent consider themselves what we in the United States would call orthodox. The remainder, about a third, consider themselves masorti, or traditional in their observance, though they do not follow all the strictures of orthodox Judaism. So will God judge Israel for its sins? Half of them are secular. The Israel pro-life group Efrat, E-F-R-A-T, Efrat, asserts that nearly two million babies have been aborted in Israel since 1948, and that close to 1,000 Israeli women each week are choosing to have an abortion. And so there are Israelis who realize that there are the sins of Judah ongoing for which the nation may be judged. Rabbi Yehuda Levine, or Levin, of Jews for Morality, wrote an article in September 2003. It was titled, The Silent Holocaust in Israel. Abortionists kill more children than terrorists. He states, quote, in the 55 years since the founding of the State of Israel, we could project a figure of about 2 million abortions. Should we be surprised that the sword has been unleashed against our people in the Holy Land? Question mark, end of quote. So there are those that realize what is going on. Here is abortion, and here's the illegal sex industry going on where, according to Associated Press, CBS.com, March uh, 2007, between 3,000 and 5,000 women have been smuggled into Israel over the past four years in a burgeoning illegal sex industry, according to a parliamentary committee report issued Wednesday. Sahava Galon, who heads the Committee Against Trade in Women, said the four-year inquiry showed how women are smuggled across the Egyptian border into Israel and along the way raped, beaten, and then sold in public auctions. Most of the women are from the former Soviet Union. These are abominations in Judah today, and God is going to judge them for that. Then there have been the uh, homosexual uh, pride parades, which, of course, uh, are openly approved by the court in uh, Israel, that uh, they can have the same kind of legal benefits governmentally, Uh, by being uh, associated as homosexuals. So Judah has got to have some repentance, and there is going to be a need for the temple and a need for renewing of the sacrifices. The temple is symbolic of God's presence. It's symbolic of the way of truth and God's way of life. As the Jerusalem Post article said, the world needs the temple. Well, it needs God's temple, in God's way of life. Key number four, 
to appreciating Jerusalem is understand the importance of the Jerusalem temple. Key number five is understand the importance of Jerusalem to you personally. Let's turn to Revelation, the third chapter. Revelation 3. God is giving us open doors. You just started, uh, actually, August 5th. We'll start on a new station in Atlanta, which reaches about 450,000 households, so we're very thankful for that new station. But Christ opens doors there in verse 7, verse 8. And he says, verse 10, Because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation or trial. The Greek is petrosmos, the time of trial, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. will be ruling as kings and priests. He that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. We just talked about the importance of the temple. A pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. You know, you will have it made, so to speak. God is going to give you the gift of eternal life. And I will write upon him, notice this, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. What does Jerusalem mean to you personally? God is going to write upon you the name of the New Jerusalem. That's going to be a part of your identity, of who you are, what you are in the future. You have a close, intimate relationship to Jerusalem. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, Hebrews 11. Abraham sought that relationship. He sought a city, because he was traveling, of course, in tents and tabernacles, called strangers and pilgrims. We're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Verse 9, Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country dwelling in the tabernacles, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him, of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What city is that? That is Jerusalem. Notice that they died in faith, not having received the promises, but they were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But notice and turn over the page to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12. So they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Galatians, well, over the page here in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, he talks about the sound of the trumpet, verse 19, when uh, Moses had come to Mount Sinai. In verse 21, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But the author of Hebrews, we feel as Paul, says in verse 22, But you are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to the God, 
to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now we realize that some of our saints, that are saints that have died, that their spirits are with God in heaven. There's no consciousness, no immortal soul, nothing of that nature. But we know that the Spirit of God, combined with the Spirit in man, creates a new spiritual entity. And those spirits are made perfect. When they are resurrected, they will be perfect. But when we come to Mount Zion, when we pray, understand, brethren, that we're coming to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Let's also understand, and I won't turn there, but you can write it down, Galatians 4, verse 26, that the Jerusalem above is free, the Apostle Paul writes, which is the mother of us all. A Mother's Day, did you think of Jerusalem? Oh, the heavenly Jerusalem is the mother of us all. Well, the church plays a role as a mother, as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So the ministers and the church play a role in a motherly way. And he goes on, that's First Thessalonians 2, verse 8, he says, So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Turn to Revelation, the 21st chapter, Revelation 21. So New Jerusalem is the mother of us all. We need to understand the importance of Jerusalem to each of us personally. Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Why was there no more sea? Well, you read in Second Peter 3, verse 9, that the whole earth is melted with molten lava. It's just purified. There are no more human beings left. There are no more remnants of human beings left of sin. God the Father is coming down to this earth, but first it must be totally purified. Of course, this is after the millennium, after the white throne judgment. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, I saw John, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And all this beautiful inspiration here, there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. Verse 4, for the former things are passed away. Verse 7, he that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful, unbelieving, abominable murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me, verse 9, one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, now this is important, come here, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Who's the bride of Christ? The church is. We are. We back in uh, Revelation 19, he says the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Revelation 19.7. And now he says, Revelation 21.9, I will show you the Lamb's wife. 
What is he talking about? Verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Who's going to be dwelling in the new Jerusalem? The Lamb's wife. Who is the Lamb's wife? Those who are in the first resurrection. So we will have a special city. That's why he tells us in Revelation, the third chapter, tells the Philadelphians, I will write upon you the name of the new Jerusalem. The bride of Christ will be living in the new Jerusalem. And then he gives the awesome description of it, the glory of the city, the foundations, the size. It's uh, verse 16. It lies four square. The length is as large as the breadth. And measure the city with a reed 12,000 furlongs. So this is 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep. It could describe a pyramid or it can describe a cube. We feel that it's more the size or shape of a cube because that's the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. And this will be on a purified earth. Now, you are supposed to be a a pillar in the temple of God. Verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And if you're the pillars, and God and Christ are the Lamb, are the temple, you have an intimate relationship with God the Father and with Christ. Verse 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So we will be looking forward to the new Jerusalem. Key number five was, understand the importance of Jerusalem to you personally. Today, Jerusalem faces future conflict and occupation by European superpowers. In Psalm 122 and verse 6, it tells us, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Christ is going to stand on the Mount of Olives, He's going to dwell in Jerusalem, the city of truth. And he said, where I am there will you be also. So when you think of Jerusalem, think of your relationship to Christ as the bride of Christ. Think of your serving the king and the nations from Jerusalem, the future capital of the world. Think of the resurrection and the kingdom of God on earth when we're crowned as kings and priests in God's royal family. And think of your ultimate dwelling with God the Father in the new Jerusalem. As he tells us, he that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. So brethren, Christ will dwell. He will live in Jerusalem. Will you be there with him as his faithful wife and bride? Let's rejoice that we will live in the city of peace that will be the city of Jerusalem forever and ever.